Hello, March Mad Men listeners. I want to applaud you for being a person of taste and insight, because you have made the wise choice to listen to an in-depth discussion of one of the greatest horror films ever made, Toby Hooper's 1974 classic, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Our goal is to give you something you'll never get anywhere else. All four of the voices you will hear tonight love this movie to death, and we are ready to take it apart the same way Bubba prepares Kirk. Our goal is a delicious meal for you, our family. As always, I am your humble host, John Evans, and I am joined by the three men who have made this podcast what it is. Screenwriter Vikram Wheat, producer Rich Eckersley, and all of the above, Michael T. Kuchak. Gentlemen, (laughs) (laughs) it is a real pleasure to convene on this topic with you tonight. Let's start with Mike, who we're very glad to get back for a movie that I know is dear to his heart. What's the latest happenings in your life, good sir? Wrapped post on Shadows. Uh, We've wrapped post on Death Metal. Uh, We're still pulling together a deal to get that released in 2023. Uh, We're just kind of like doing the yeoman's work of pulling together the soundtrack and everything that that entails. Just this past week, I was in the studio on post on Shadows. And uh, we have a new score by Alan Howarth. Oh, yes, of Halloween fame. Yes. And uh, a million other things, but yeah, scholar and a gentleman, very talented dude. And so uh, we've been incorporating that new score and uh, balancing. Out. It's it's funny. I was just doing this work on death metal in the earlier part of the year, and now here I am doing post sounds, you know, again. Uh, but let's have these jobs in life, you know. Very cool. Yeah, making progress uh, every day, a little closer to the screen. That's that's fantastic, man. So I should have two movies that I wrote come out next year. Shadows, I'm a writer-producer on, and Death Metal, of course, a writer, director, editor, everything. It's only amazing that I didn't have to do craft service on Death Metal. <laughs> and, and working on a couple of like the big, bigger action projects, one of which should be going out to the agencies in the near future for talent. So, well, I am, but again, it's... I, on that one, I'm just, quote-unquote, just the writer. My, my job is I hand in the screenplay, and every once in a while, people call me and tell me what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're not in the driver's seat. <laughs> I'm on the other side of the table on, on, on those projects. So what are you drinking tonight? This, John, is, you know, back in college, we would call it jungle juice. Oh. It's just kind of a, <laughs> it's, it's a liquid melange of, of stuff that I had in the fridge, so... It's a little red, the cheap red wine, some seltzer water to act as a filler, some vodka in there, like a little bit of rum, I want to say. So, you know, I'm, I'm trying to cut, yeah, I'm trying to cut it so I'm not a sloppy mess within the hour, you know. So the, the idea is to find that happy medium where, you know, you're loose and talkative and la 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 la, but not bah, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, the mixers definitely help, uh, absolutely. Yeah, yes. the seltzers and whatnot. I've been definitely partaking of those of late, but uh, tonight I've just got the Elysian. It's a it's a pumpkin stout. It's called the Dark of the Moon. It's got a cool mm. werewolf on the on the bottle, and so cool. I actually poured uh, two of them into the old skull mug. So that's, uh, that's ah. what I got there. Yep. Werewolf pumpkin beer in the skull mug. So. <laughs> 
It, it's a <sighs> horror dude version of a pumpkin spice latte. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed, and I, I have my uh, my Sam Squanch in the cemetery shirt on, so I'm good to go. Wow, uh, let's uh, let's do this. So, Mike, uh, tell us your basic story on Texas Chainsaw. Like, when did it come into your life? What's your relationship with this movie? Where does the story begin for you with this film? I could not tell you uh, the first time that I saw it. Uh, because it, it came out when I was, you know, pretty pretty much first born. Yeah. Uh, so th- this movie has been in my life as you know longer than I can remember or forget. It was the classic example of the horror movie that you hear about. You know, uh, that you see the one the the one sheet on, and you hear that title, and it's like, oh my god, what is that? I think I might have actually seen it like a little bit later than some other movies, like say uh, Poltergeist or The Shining or whatnot. You know, we're talking about like the early days of like on TV, like HBO when HBO like first became a thing, fourth grade, fifth grade. Whenever it showed up on cable first is whenever I saw it. I know for a fact that I saw it before I was able to rent it, but as soon as I had the the means to do so, I, I might as well just bought it because I that, that was like my comfort, like you know, go to look around the video store, eh, eh, nothing's grabbing me, eh, fuck it, I'll just watch Chainsaw. <laughs> I, I've seen that movie more times than I've had meals. Uh, I would say that if you put a gun to my head and asked for my top five movies of all time, it would be one of them, uh, along with Robocop, Conan the Barbarian, Road Warrior, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, it's in Rare so, Air. It's yeah, in the Pantheon. Yeah, it, it really is. I have a very special deep love of this movie it never gets old for me uh it's like evil dead 2 in the sense that like every once in a while i've watched it a few too many times recently i need to take a break from it but i'm never i've never once gone back to it and just like oh why did i ever like the it 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 actually gets better as time goes on as i watch more movies and as i make my own and i see the special lightning in a bottle that that film captured uh there's nothing like it before or since it really is like a unique one-of-a-kind kind of a movie just cinematically speaking but also for the genre as a whole i cannot praise this movie highly enough it's hard to praise it too much. There's no doubt. And I think that's one of the things we'll probably realize we're not alone in that as we talk about this tonight. It's clearly on most people's Mount Rushmore's. And it it's the, the list of honors and accolades that it's earned is dizzying. So I just got a text from Vic. Uh, he'll be joining us in about 10 minutes. Um, and I'm sure Rich will be along shortly thereafter. I'll say I can't put my finger on my first viewing either, which is kind of strange because this movie, I feel the same way. It's it's always been just a singular experience in my life. I can't imagine a more intense movie, a more grueling movie. I guess Evil Dead 1 is up there as far as this, this kind of experience that just takes it out of you. But at the same time, mm-hmm. it is fun. You know, it's not like something like Martyrs or... It's not entirely horror, but Darren Aronofsky's Requiem for a Dream. Movies that you're not like, I can't wait to see that movie five times in the next five years right you're like okay right, i right, I, right. I checked the box i had the experience texas chainsaw even though it's like arduous and you're sort of experiencing along with sally this kind of 
ultimate nightmare. It's also still kind of fun and beautiful and arty and thought-provoking, and it takes a long time to even get to the the, the stuff that's excruciating. So I wouldn't call it a movie that I can't watch over and over and over, or I don't look forward to seeing every time, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it's weird because it's often described, or at least put in the same area code as, like, grueling survival horror. But uh, like you said, I there are films like Martyrs, where I watched that. Uh, I have never seen the remake, but I watched the original French film, and I'm like, wow, this is an excellent extremely well-made interesting cool movie that i will never ever watch again (laughs) right (laughs) right (laughs) we still want to have fun watching these movies to some degree right not just be like bummed out texas chainsaw not only is special to me because i in and of itself it's an excellent movie but it's one of the rare examples of a film living up to its height i like it like i said i heard about this when i was a kid because when i was a child we mike we lad mike single digit <laughs> years old i this and you're going to school and th- this is the age when you and your friends are exchanging like urban legends uh yeah. you know a uh, bloody mary you know if you go in the bathroom and you say bloody mary and a mirror five times a ghost is going to show up that's that you're doing sleepovers people are telling spooky stories you know the hook with the hand oh you know my brother's friend once went up to cuba road and he ran into some satanists and they chased him in his car you're hearing all these stories and you're young enough here it's like okay that's probably a story but uh you know and (laughs) when it comes to movies you you start hearing about movies from your friends my parents were far more laissez-faire about what i watched than uh others like uh you know, my parents were pretty much like, if it's not like crazy, like, I'm not sitting there in front of like Debbie Does Dallas, but like they wa- they let me watch The Shining when I was, you know, eight or nine, whenever it came out. The shower scene included. They're just like, I, you know, and if it gets scary, just leave the room. But Texas Chainsaw, I mean, especially with that one sheet and with that yeah. title, you know, that is when horror was like really dangerous when it really felt like it was adjacent to like an X-rated movie. Like you had to go to a special theater at midnight and it's that, like it's that crazy and scary and gory. And it's like an experience that's, you know, in the video store, it's behind like a, a curtain, you know, you have to go in the special room to get Texas Chainsaw Massacre because, uh, you know, any other horror movie doesn't have even nearly as explicit of a, title that title is one of the most brilliant things i've ever heard the texas chainsaw massacre what could that be is it a comedy a drama about two lovers who are (laughs) star-crossed where does it take place what happens in this movie (laughs) how does it what tools are used for this to occur (laughs) it's all right there up front isn't it yeah like like even Halloween, uh, you know, movies like Halloween, it's like, it's pretty explicit. It's like, yeah, it's probably not going to be a comedy, right? You know, La La La, Evil Dead. Mm-hmm. You know, The Shining requires a little bit more explanation. Poltergeist, you kind of get, oh, well, that sounds like a, you know, La La La. But uh, all of the classy ghost movies and, you know, the even The Exorcist, like uh, most people wouldn't know what an exorcist was when that movie first came out. It still needed explanation. You still needed to watch a trailer to go, oh, this is what the movie's about, right? But this one, 
the like I've always said, the best titles are where the logline is in the title. It is the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. (laughs) (laughs) And it delivers. I even love saying those. Yeah, exactly. And it does not disappoint. It isn't just like, oh, well, I I guess it's in Texas. Well, I guess there's a little bit of chainsaw over there. Yeah, I don't know. You call this a massacre? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it really is only a body count of about four or five people, but, you know, that qualifies. And I do remember that that one sheet. It has this wonderfully disreputable grindhouse kind of a vibe, and you just know if you watch that movie, you know, it's going to be really intense and unpleasant and unvarnished and uncensored and no holds barred, right? And I think the movie has that feeling. In order to capture that lighting you had to shoot that film in texas as an independent hey there's a guy hello hi hello. hey hi. it's rich <laughs> speaking of texas tell me more about texas <laughs> <laughs> this man is from texas that's really? a wonderful thing indeed it is welcome aboard rich good to have you thank you mike good to see you again hey man <clears throat> I mean, Hello. in a manner of speaking, you're shrouded yes. in darkness. I've got a floor lamp that, if I throw it on, is a giant hot spot. So it, it's better to be mysterious than to be blown out. All right. I think it's fine. It's definitely working. What's going on, Rich? How are you, man? I'm hanging in there. Uh, the, this this brisk seasonal weather. I don't want to name a season, but... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, it's got it's got my allergies acting up, so I'm a bit a, a little bit sore, but like I'm I'm powering through. I'm feeling good. I'm all right. Good, good. I've and got, I've got some wine to kick the evening off. Excellent. That was my question. You've got some wine. It's a wonderful thing. Um, I've got a a skull mug of pumpkin stout, so I'm right there with you, man. Ready to talk about this film in painstaking detail. We were just discussing, Rich, sort of the the mystique of the movie and how it had this sort of grimy, disreputable, almost like akin to porn in some ways kind of quality. I mean, it played the drive in circuit and just kind of had the vibe of something you had to go behind a a beaded curtain to, to get a copy of this, to take it home with you and, did you ever have that sort of relationship with it? Like as a kid, were your parents totally fine with you watching it? Or what was the sort of mystique of the film for you uh, growing up? You know, ironically, this is a film that was not even on my radar, uh, probably until I was a teenager, which you'd think that it, you know, being such an iconic texas film like would have come up more like i I think i knew it more by reputation than the actual film but like i don't recall you know like my family or anyone really having a a take on it i do remember my dad watching it at some point when i was like probably around like eight or nine and i i caught the very beginning of the opening title sequence and that's about as far as i got so like i do think that you know my parents had a pretty liberal sense of what they would allow me to watch the fact that i wasn't allowed to continue watching it either meant that I wasn't intrigued by it or that they kept me away from it. I would guess they probably kept me away from it, but like, it's not like it had like a really like lurid reputation 
either in my community or or in my household, which is interesting because I mean, I don't know, as, as I've been like digging deeper into it and realizing that there's a certain level of like inspiration behind this film that like actually comes from like relatively close to where I grew up, you know, and the film being shot essentially where I spent like the most of my like early adulthood. Uh, and I'm surprised that it didn't have more of a presence. Yeah, that is surprising. I mean, I happen to be checking just, you know, as a data point here for the conversation, it is still by far the highest grossing film in this franchise, which I'm not talking about adjusted for inflation. It's it's kind of funny that just in, in raw dollars, this movie was a massive, massive hit. 80,500,000. The next closest, according to Box Office Mojo, was the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the beginning from 2006, which made half that. Texas Chainsaw Massacre came out uh, at a point in the film industry when theaters would get a print and just run it at midnight for years. So, I mean, it, it's not like, you know, a, an Avengers movie where you got to make all of your money pretty much in the first two weekends and then, you know, goes on for, you know, eight to perhaps 16 weeks. So if you're really super, super, super lucky, it's the kind of thing where it's like for years, if you want to see Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you're going to, you know, this grungy theater like down the street you know, on 42nd Street. I'm not a film historian, but I've done enough reading about this film to get a sense that it just you know the the meter just kept clicking it was just it, it's just yeah well uh what should we play at midnight eh, tcm just throw it on there <laughs> yeah there will always be weirdos who will want to see it again and there wasn't a lot of home video obviously until the mid 80s really and so that's about 10 years after the movie came out so if you're if you're gonna monetize this if you're gonna put it in front of people uh, it's going to show up in the theatrical receipts for that decade. So that's probably why the number is high. Per that, uh, a, a print will be running at the New Delhi in a couple few weeks. Nice. Sadly, it's uh, sold out, but uh, they have made it clear that there are going to be a few tickets available, first come, first serve. And I've seen this movie a couple of times on the big screen. Uh, over the years so I mean it's not like you know a box that remains unchecked but at the end of the day motherfucker if you're gonna play TCM on a screen within reach I'm gonna be there so (laughs) yeah man (laughs) if you want to capture me with a bear trap just place it in front of a (laughs) theater playing the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and go get a sandwich (laughs) (laughs) yeah I saw it at the Egyptian in like 2003 or 2004 or something. That's the last time I saw it in the theater. Uh, I, I saw it with Vic, actually. Um, it, was a, it was a good time. Uh, I see Vic is in the area. Uh, he's probably dealing with some child, dog, cat, getting a beer, perhaps. Oh, yes, <laughs> indeed, getting a beer. There he is. <laughs> hey, Vic. Baby, baby needs a bottle. <laughs> Good to see you, buddy. Good to see you. Yeah. It is good to be seen. <laughs> What's new in your world, man, and what are you drinking tonight? I am getting ready to crack open a great big North Coast Brewing Brother Thelonious. Lovely. And I'm going to pour it into my new massive frosty mug. I don't think this is quite a tulip glass, but 
nevertheless, goblet. Goblet, yes. yes. Like fucking Game of Thrones over here. <laughs> what was the occasion for uh, acquiring a massive goblet? It was a dollar more than the tulip glasses I was already buying. All right. so That's a beautiful go. thing. I can hear it. The mic is picking up that goodness flowing. Outstanding. About a 12 ABV. Yeah. <laughs> uh, other than that, I am just I am just mired in the typical insanity of helping to run a small business, keeping two children alive, just on hiding the fucking remote control every time they get a hold of it, and uh, two dogs and four chickens and a three-legged cat. The menagerie that is the yes. the wheat household. <laughs> We're talking about. A similar menagerie in Texas, but most of the animals are dead. Well, there is that one chicken in the cage. Uh, there might be a pig, unless that's just Leatherface we hear in the kitchen. But there are certainly some some frisky sawyers, and your son is a frisky sawyer. That's his first name. But uh, let's talk about this family, shall we? We're all here. Let's let's get serious about this examination of the film. Uh, I'll throw out a couple of first ideas to to kind of get things going. I don't think we've talked about this yet. The film has been declared the ultimate pro-vegetarian film for its animal <laughs> rights themes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> There's an irony, of course, in human beings being slaughtered for meat, putting us in the same position that the farm animals that discussed and, and shown in the film are. And Hooper has been quoted as saying that it's a film about meat. And apparently he even gave up meat while he was making the film. And he also added that he's sort of felt that it's about the chain of life and killing uh, sentient beings. And I, I definitely think that it blurs the line between human beings and animals in different ways. It's it's more ways than one. And I think we're all cattle to someone, but at the same time, we're also all part of the slaughterhouse as well. Live, eat, kill, die. Sometimes it's more literal than other times, but let's let's kick that around uh, a little bit. Mike, do you have any thoughts on, on any of that? One of the things that I find frightening about this is, uh, as a horror movie generally, and a slasher movie specifically, that it's the idea of the victims are, are, are being used. If you look at, for instance, uh, Psycho or Halloween, uh, there's almost um, a gentility to the idea of taking a, t a kitchen knife that just so happens to be lying around and using that as your murder weapon. It's a tool within the kitchen. It's a weapon of convenience. It's just kind of right there. And you're using it to like very clearly like kill another human being because you want the human being to die. And in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, it is the idea of taking humans using them for livestock. Uh, and it comes right down to the title and the titular weapon. We're not using a knife. We're not using a rope. We're not using anything that you would find on like a, like a, a murder mystery. It's the blunt reality of using a, uh, a tool, an industrial item, a chainsaw. And even when he, when Leatherface isn't using a chainsaw, what's he, you know, what is he using? He's using a mallet. Uh, the only more blunt way that you could put a point on it is if he was using a capture bolt gun. 
you know, uh, <laughs> or a sle- or a sledgehammer, you know, uh, something that they would use to put down livestock. And even when uh, they have our final girl captured at the end, uh, and they're trying to get Grandpa to to bash her head in, uh, she's still being used as an object of enjoyment for these malevolently insane people. And I remember back in high school, I had a friend of mine who used to play guitar in one of my bands. And he always thought that Texas Chainsaw was a very funny movie. And I, I, I understood where he was coming from because he'd be like, dude, I mean, look at that dinner scene. It's like they've, you know, they've got this corpse like old man and they're trying to bash her head in and, you know, they're all laughing and it's, it's crazy. I'm like, yeah, it is. I, I understand how you can see the dark humor in that, but I have enough empathy within my soul to be able to put myself in her situation and understand it's just like they're using her life and her suffering as ju- just a plaything, you know? So, and, and then after she's expired, they're just going to use her for meat. It's rare that you find there's an entire pantheon of these kind of Sawney bean films that, that draw on this, you know, cannibals and whatnot. But the only other film that I've seen that has put as close of a point on it thematically is Mad Max. The idea that like all of the characters in there are valued only for exactly what resource they can provide, whether it's you know the brides with the milk, Max for his blood, uh, you know the servitors for their work or their souls. Uh, there's even that scene where. The other leaders give uh, Immortan Joe a hard time because they've used X amount of petrol, X amount of bullets. It's not worth it. When you uh, uh, take human life and boil it down to just the meaninglessness of, of what resource can you provide, I, that's, um, that's frightening in and of itself. Yeah, so, that we're a commodity, absolutely. Yeah, just a yeah. commodity with a certain utilitarian value, and, and that is all. Yeah, and it, it is uh, also a reminder that we are still on a food chain, and usually the films that remind us of our place on the food chain are creature features, where like a big animal or a monster is going around and eating people. You know, kind of you know drawing on you know when we were Stone Age people and we were afraid of lions and tigers and bears, and in this case, it's coming from not you know saber tooth tiger, but from a, a, a Neanderthal clan. Uh, that we've run across and they still see us in the same way. Uh, but it does come down to like the most brutal Darwinism that you could put on screen. It's, you know, are you strong enough to keep me from eating you? (laughs) But it also kind of begs Uh, the question, like in terms of civilization, if you have people whose job it is to kill all the time reasonably sentient they feel they they're scared they whatever animals to to kill those things how big of a leap really is it for them to see their fellow human beings the way that they see the animals they kill every day and that's sort of the the basic savagery of the slaughterhouse i guess is the is the notion if you murder hundreds of animal animals all day and they're all uh, you know, sad and crying and the entire thing, and you just kind of put it out of your mind. You know, it's only one tiny little step to go, well, if I just ignore the screams of this animal while I bash it in the head so I can carve it up for dinner, then so be it. And once uh, you do it, yeah. you're like, oh, they kind of carve up the same way, you know? It's not really that different. 
<laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So thematically, it's all it's not lost on me that they run a barbecue stand, and uh, it's also built on the legend of Sawney Bean. If you guys are familiar of course, with that, of course, of course, we touched on Sawney, it. Yeah, Sawney Bean in and of himself is probably a folktale because even when he was popularized, it was like the late 1600s, and it's weird that there's no court records because I mean, apparently he got him and his weirdo family got dragged into court and according to the legal paperwork it never happened so it was also a folklore it's a piece of folklorish tale but we see you know Texas Chainsaw Massacre is perhaps the first and most explicit expression of that folklore in American cinema and from there you can push out to Hills Have Eyes Wrong Turn all of them but you could even take a deeper step back i think to fairy tales because they really are ogres it's it's basically an ogre's cave uh it's a lot like uh the witch's gingerbread house there are people who live out in the middle of nowhere and if you run across them they will put you in the oven and eat you you could go back to the 13th warrior weirdly enough touches on this uh the jack ketchum books off season offspring the woman yep or, uh, uh, yeah, Michael Crichton, yeah, the original book that uh, 13th Warrior was based on was uh, called Eaters of the Dead. It, it was a long tale that's, I think, uh, deeply rooted in the zeitgeist of our species. And that's why it continues to have power, not just this one singular movie, but also the franchise and movies that are like it. Hooper has said it's definitely he he says fairy tale fairy tale Grimm's fairy tale all the time. I've never heard him directly reference Sonny Bean, and I've also heard him say I was aware of the Ed Gein case because my family was in Wisconsin when I was a very small child. I knew what was going on, and I sort of picked up the the basics of it. But when he wrote this script, he didn't even know the name Ed Gein. It was just very much kind of vestigial childhood memory. So for what it's worth, like I, I don't I don't think he consciously, at least he's never acknowledged going back to Sonny Bean uh specifically. But I want to throw it to Rich because the Texan meat eating, the brisket, all the goodness, like what are your thoughts about that whole like is there is there an awkwardness? Obviously I you're not a vegetarian, Rich, but you know, what do you think about this whole notion of the blurring of the lines between people and the meat that we eat? So I find that that theory that I've, I have also read elsewhere almost a little bit of a, a stretch to call this film as being in, in any way pro-vegetarian. I mean, one thing that I do want to call out, and, and I'm happy to have someone correct me here, but I don't think there's any overt recognition of cannibalism in this movie is there like do we ever get any sort of like confirmation that that is what's going on or is it mm. just is it strictly implied yeah you might be right because i as many times as i've a hundred watched this millions of times I, I there's no scene where they're like okay let's chop her up and eat her now no one like bites on anybody's flesh it's never like explicit but they have this collection of bones, and they have this basement, and then they have these tools, and this is how they right. treat her. So yeah, it is, you're, you're right. It is implied. Don't don't get me wrong. It doesn't look good. But, <laughs> but, I, but I don't know that we it have, won't, know it we have won't sound good in court. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, it it is interesting because like I, certainly 
thing with the the hitchhiker, I mean, obviously there's this subtext of slaughterhouses, but when you talk about the way that humans are treated in the movie, I'd say that you sort of have them divide into two camps. Um, You basically have, you know, everyone other than um, Franklin and Sally, right, are basically killed because they infringe on the property. Like, they enter the house. They put themselves in, in harm's way. You know, there is a reading of this that we've discussed where, you know, in a sense, like Leatherface is sort of like defending his property, which like, I mean, Jesus, what could be more Texan than that? <laughs> they're, they're on your land. They walked in your door. You have permission to sledgehammer them in the, in the head, like stand your ground. It's not like they were like lambs to the slaughter in this. Now, once Leatherface is going after Franklin, like, that's a different story. Like, that, at that point, he's, like, attacking with aggression, and then obviously, like, Sally is, like, a completely different, you know, narrative where she's kind of pulled into this world, although, you know, as we come to understand, like, like Leatherface was sort of commissioned with making sure that, she's, that, that she doesn't actually get away. So, like, at a certain point, that is a matter of survival for the for the family that they protect her. And like the only things that we're really aware of is that they've been doing grave robbing and messing around with corpses. So I'm not saying that I think that they're not cannibals. I'm pretty sure they are. And it certainly gets confirmed in later films. But in terms of like, if you talk about this movie of making a commentary about the way that we treat animals, I don't exactly know that it's like a, an honest to God parallel any more than any other you know, slasher film. And obviously this is at the, the vanguard of it, but I don't know. It's a little bit of a, a weak analogy. Yeah. I, I do like that. We never get that scene where like, for instance, we, we see the Sawyers are like, they're killing a pig and it's screaming and they bash it in the head and there's blood all over the place. And someone is like, you know, they're, they're clutching their pearls and it was like, Oh, that poor, pig what a terrible thing to happen and then they're doing it to people and we're just like okay i get it yes i understand now thank you we never get that it's all implied which is the again the level of brilliance of this film i think you could make a case that franklin is also asking for it i mean i know he wasn't trapped. <laughs> yeah and, well, and, and that get the way yeah, so like I'm... legally i don't see how these people are culpable of anything except grave robbing <laughs> which is a misdemeanor <laughs> uh, one of the things that we've talked about before that i do think is just relevant to bring up in the context of all this is in the in the the context of serial killers you typically have a process killer or a product killer a process killer being someone who enjoys the process of killing it someone who you know it's it's an argento film where they they take needles under the eyeballs and you know disembowel them or whatever uh versus a product killer which is someone like jeffrey dahmer who who wants the body for his own sort of bizarre uh fucked up purposes and i think that this this family is largely a product uh uh killer uh leather face at least although they do obviously have strong feelings about the process and that they want it to be done with a hammer and they want it to be, you know, they, they have sort of specific things that they look for in the actual murders. But mostly it seems like they want the bodies. And that part really does feel derived from the Ed Gein story. And uh, I know Toby roommates say, you know, oh, I was sort of aware of it, but it wasn't really an inspiration. I have a list 
of the things that were found in Ed Gein's house. And just stop me if any of this feels familiar. <laughs> a wastebasket made of human skin, human skin covering several chair seats, skulls on his bedposts, bowls made from human skulls, a corset made from a female torso skinned from shoulders to waist, leggings made from human skin, masks made from the skin of female heads. I'm going to put some of this aside because it's pretty fucked up, but there is a belt made from human nipples, a pair of lips on a window shade drawstring. That's about half of it. I think especially because as you go forward in this franchise, the grave robbing really gets left behind. Like it's really just a backdrop for this. It's a detail that we get at the beginning we get the graves and the bodies sort of put up there, and then we get the what happens in the house. But we don't ever really come back to the Sawyers as grave robbers again, do we? I don't think no. so. And, you know, it's funny that you bring up that list. I, I, too, have that list in front of me. And going a little bit farther down, we get some really disturbing stuff. Yeah, uh, excellent. You just dive right in. Yeah, I, I, I listen to death metal all day. These are just song titles, man. But uh, I mean, if you want to really <laughs> turn your stomach, looking down the list, I see a painting of a sunflower, uh, a mural that says "Y'all means all." Uh, <laughs> hey, <laughs> <good>. hey, now. <laughs> He's describing the background behind Vic. Everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I think that one of the in, most interesting points that I wasn't totally thinking about until I listened to the, the Dead Meat podcast this week, even though, of course, it, it makes sense, um, they were talking about Texas Chainsaw in like 2019 or so. There's no sexual element with this family. And, I mean, across the board in slasher movies, there's a sexual element. And across the board... With serial killers, there's almost always a sexual element. So the the idea that there's no interest in Sally sexually, there's no gratification, masturbation, whatever, that seems to come of this, no pun intended, for these guys, is really different. Because the root of the pathology 90 times out of 100 with killers seems to be that you know they're getting off on the feet or in the or the pantyhose or the bondage or something like it's all or just the control there's always a sexual element so what do you guys think about the fact that for these guys like again product and process it it really doesn't seem to be a piece of the puzzle here until we get to the part two of course where uh bubba slash leatherface and stretch uh, certainly there are some sexually charged and even i dare say romantic aspects to their dynamic leatherface isn't being sexually forward with stretch he's being very sweet he's offering her a flower it's it's very uh, 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 naive and childish, but uh, I, you know, that, there's that one there's that one part where he's kind of nudging her leg slash crotch with the blade of the chainsaw. It's not on, oh, but yeah. yeah, I almost forgot about that. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I yeah, the boy, yeah, boy, is that subtle? <laughs> uh, but I think that um, <laughs> it flew right by me. But I think you know, the reason why I. You know, I, I made this joke at the time, the last time I was on this, that 
this entire slasher search process is going to boil down to either Halloween or TCSM. And um, the reason for that, I think, is both of these are, are very folklore, legendy kind of driven. Uh, this is like a, a grim fairy tale kind of a setup. It's a song being, it's, it's, it's a part of our zeitgeist, the idea that we have the family of ogres that will eat you, they'll throw you in their oven if they catch you. And Michael Myers, very similarly, you know, that's, he's the personification of an urban legend. He's the boogeyman. It's the story that kids tell each other when they're being, uh, babysats when they're kids. And then, oh no, what if a guy really does show up X, Y, Z. I think that's what obviates them from a sexual element uh not saying that there's no such thing as a folklore or urban legend that doesn't have sex in it but that's not just not where it's coming from it's not coming from you know it's not john doe and seven it's not uh the recent you know it's not Dahmer. like they're not trying to replicate a real life serial killer uh they're trying to tell a campfire story so uh, I do want to point out, though, there there's two critical things with Halloween and Friday the 13th that even if it's entirely subtextual, uh, other than the Friday the 13th movie where it's suggested that Jason rapes a girl, which does exist. It's one of the movies. In three. But yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, but the very first scene that we see Michael Myers in with his sister is heavily, heavily sexualized. Yeah, I, but we don't get the. We can infer that he kills her because she just had sex, and that is like the driving critique thesis paper about slashers since that movie came out. Uh, but uh, he doesn't go after Laurie Strode because she had sex too. Uh, sure. But he certainly does his level best to murder her. We don't know if the guy that he stole his mechanics uniform off of had sex. You never know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like the formative, the formative, the the scene that we get that supposedly yeah. weaponizes Michael Myers is fraught with sexuality. So that's that's yeah, all the, I'm saying. The, yeah, the movie has a degree of sexuality because he happens to be killing these people while they're uh, interested in or or engaging in the act of sex uh but i don't think that that's his like oh you you are had sex and now i'm mad at you uh it's not like sure. betsy palmer and friday the 13th where we put an underline under that thought yes yeah. he's the boogeyman but all of this is to say that it's really absent from texas chainsaw that's all i'm saying yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and uh you know similarly it's it's like a texas chainsaw massacre is interesting that it didn't immediately spawn a wave of slasher movies in the same way that Halloween did uh, even though it was also a massively financially successful independent horror movie uh, in it, in a weird way it's almost like the comparison that I make is Blair Witch to Paranormal Activity it's like Blair Witch came out was this massively successful movie and there were some found footage movies made after that but nowhere compared to when Paranormal came out and it became an entire cottage industry. Why one and not the other? You know, those are, uh, I'll leave it to the grad students to figure out. That's another great conversation to have at another point in time, but it, it is pretty remarkable that you bring that up in the sense that Texas Chainsaw comes out in 74, very little copycats, certainly no flood floodgates opening, 78, Halloween comes along, floodgates, everybody's imitating it, 
And yeah, 1999, Blair Witch Project, uh, no, no, you know, basically does not initiate a movement of found footage films. And then 2005, what? Nine. A, nine, nine. nine. 2009, thank you. Uh, Paranormal Activity comes out, and yes, Floodgate's entire genre is created. Very strange, very strange. All right, Vic, before we move on, do you have anything that you want to put in here? I do. Thank mm-hmm. you for asking. The difference I would draw between Texas Chainsaw and Halloween, or I'm sorry, between the difference I would draw between Texas Chainsaw and Blair Witch is that I think Texas Chainsaw Massacre in 1974 was so disreputable that that was part of what drew audiences to it, but that studios didn't want to be associated with that kind of filmmaking. And I think there was something just a little bit classier, even in the title, never mind the execution and, and, and the presence of Donald Pleasance and some of those other elements in Halloween that made it seem like a more repeatable formula. And I think Texas Chainsaw seemed like something you'd have to be insane to try and do again <laughs> because it was such a, a just clusterfuck of, of drugs and heat and dead bodies and, and madness. That, not, that not, not just together. disreputable, but also laser specific in the sense that if you're going to like try to do that, it's like, oh, it's going to be the – Michigan corkscrew killings or whatever the fuck you know, whereas like Halloween, you know, if your producer can kind of go, Oh, well, what other holidays are there? <laughs> yeah, it's like... Right. Yeah. The, 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 the very basic concept of <laughs> let's pick a holiday. What was a big organizing principle of the deluge of slasher films? So I, I see that Rich is currently muted, but if he unmutes itself himself, I will throw it back to him. But, in the meantime, I have another discussion point I wanted to throw out. Kim Newman, who is a writer of, you know, uh, genre books. Uh, Anno Dracula. Ex- perfect example. Yes. He, he said that uh, Hooper's presentation of the Sawyer family in that dinner scene is a parody of the typical American nuclear family, where we have the gas station owner, the cook, is is representing the breadwinning father figure, even if he is only the older brother, which is what uh, Hooper has confirmed. And then the the killer Leatherface, he's depicted as a bourgeois housewife. Uh, in the absence of true female archetypes in this family, Leatherface has willingly or unwillingly decided to play that role. And the hitchhiker is sort of the rebellious teenager of the family. What do you guys think of that? And Rich, yeah, like t- take away, take it away with those, those dynamics and those familial roles. Does that spark anything with you? There's definitely a strong vein of like Americana in this movie. Like I'd say that this movie is very distinctly American. And you could say that about a lot of a lot of horror films but i don't know it's it's hard to imagine this being made honestly outside of texas uh you know to, to like the the point that you're saying mike where it's like this is kind of like it, it can't really be like replicated without the the replication being so painfully obvious as being the michigan corkscrew killer i think the fact that this movie so much of this movie is about seemingly about capitalism and 
you know, the ability of these characters to sort of like be contributors to society through their jobs or sort of being like rendered useless and therefore find themselves with like idle hands to do the devil's work. There's all something about it that really screams this sort of like desperate cry for an unattainable American dream. A lot of ideas get thrown at this film, you know, like, like particularly by the filmmakers themselves. And you kind of get the feeling that there's a lot of like, sort of like stoned counterculture inspiration going into this movie. And I don't, I don't discount any of it, but like, sure. I totally see that interpretation playing out in the, in the, in the dinner scene in particular, there's, there clearly are like kind of creating a, a nuclear family. Now to what end it's like, why are they recreating that? Is is it because that it's something that they are feeling like they have lost out on, or is it something because they feel like that's the only way to interpret a dinner? Like this is the only way that they've ever understood like a family unit to, to be like, why do they sort of feel compelled to act out this fantasy of a, of a family unit? That part, I guess, I, I guess I'm less sure of, except to say that it is, again, harkens back to the idea of like, they sort of still see themselves as productive members of the working class, you know, like the, the proletariats who ultimately have been sort of like put out of the, the life that they deserved, that they feel the need to recreate it. So I don't know. I, I, I see it. I mean, like you can't get any more Americana than Rockwell. Well, I think it, it draws an interesting juxtaposition too, because, you know, I keep coming back to the generational conflict in this. And I think what you see in the the hippies, the kids from the 60s and the 70s, that kind of Americana is exactly what they were rebelling against. And I'm not suggesting even that this is, is conscious, but that Toby Hooper might look at that idea of the nuclear American family and sort of portray it as this twisted funhouse mirror version of it, because that's probably you know, an exaggerated idea of what it looked like to a lot of people and a lot of, of young people in the 1970s. I have a different read on it. I think it's very obviously... Of course you do, John. Of course you do. <laughs> to me, it's quite obvious, not to be condescending, but uh, that, that this is like... <laughs> not to be condescending, but no. I think, I think preceding any statement with the words "not to be condescending" is perhaps one of the more condescending ways. To yeah, go that's into true. Thought. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. No doubt. The thing is, it seems obvious that this is a vestigial, the remnants of a higher station, not only of class but even of civilization. That, that they're acting out. They have vague memories. You know, 30 years ago, whenever, when these people were very young, these, these three guys, the Sawyers that we meet, they, they were at a more genteel version of this scene, and they're just going on this memory of more prosperous times in their family where grandma was there and grandpa was there. And you know what? To us, it probably wouldn't look all that creepy and crazy and insane. But because the intervening years have been real, real hard and these people have 
not been in society and they've been damaged if anything by their work experiences and now they are destitute and they're just kind of carrying out the 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 they have the skills that they learned when they were a member of society but they don't have any lawful means to practice those skills anymore and so you get this this parody of what they think is is normal but they they have gone so far they've degenerated and devolved so far from those days that it becomes just this hollow echo of of society and of a normal family that that's how i read it now john i think you're onto something there and that's actually you you just cued me onto a reading of this that i hadn't i suppose should have been obvious and maybe was obvious and i'm just dumb but that which would be the the southern gothic interpretation of this film which uh, as defined by wikipedia in the 30 seconds i took to look it up uh, common themes of southern gothic include storytelling of deeply flawed disturbing or eccentric characters decayed or derelict settings grotesque situations and other sinister events relating to or stemming from poverty alienation crime or violence now what i think of it as is stemming from sort of a, a post-Civil War plantation South where yeah. the, the the sort of white people that were once prosperous under, uh, you know, a situation where they had slavery suddenly have found themselves, you know, decaying and falling apart and they don't have the money and have kind of gone mad in that, that loss. Well, that's probably the historical family. basis up until the... The 1970s, which is the next topic I want to get into, but please continue. It, yeah, exactly. Well, mm -hmm. but exactly right because that's so that is the the sort of traditional when I think of Flannery O'Connor, you know, Eudora Welty in Southern Gothic. That's what that's the the story that they're talking about. This is almost the next generation of that, where you have these people who are who are derelict, whose station has fallen, not because of the Civil War. But because of mechanization and the industrial revolution and the the, the things that have that have taken them out of that uh, that position that they once held. Yeah, see, I, all that plays to the meat eating and the people grabbing, but none of it uh, leads us to the grave robbing. Like they're they're keyed off. We open the very first Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Anything that we get is the work that they. You what wh what is it about the Civil War that compunks them to send go to a random graveyard, dig it up and create uh, sculptures out of it? Uh, there's again, there's a dark humor, but it's also like right off the bat, it's like oh whoever did this is deeply deeply twisted. I it, like I get where uh, we would get that kind of Ed Gein aspect to it but i would have to say just as a sidebar to this conversation i have uh come to the realization that the true special sauce nothing against hooper brilliant brilliant guy is one of my top five movies of all time but the true special sauce of these movies is i believe kim hankel if we're going to look at a through line it's his vision of texas as an open air asylum that makes this movie so unique and so wonderful. And uh, and you can see that voice go through everything else. Uh, Eaten Alive is a really, really good example of this, where, like, everybody is crazy. It's, you know, everybody's cranked up to 11. 
And I recently rewatched uh, four, the one that he wrote and directed, uh, The New Beginning. And uh, that one is it's in stark contrast to three. Like three is like uh, if you try to remake Texas Chainsaw Massacre and make it by like normal people, you know, <laughs> uh, whereas four is like, oh, OK, the crazy's back. And you look at the Oh, it's because Kim Henkel is writing this and, and directing it, too. But it's like right from the start when like, you know, people are just randomly screaming crazy shit at each other. And uh, it, we see that it, in the first movie, circling back the idea that the kids in the van are tourists to this. They're from Texas, but they're from a more civilized part of Texas. They're from small T, Texas. They're from Rich Eckersley, Texas. They're not from Sawyer family, Texas. <laughs> so it's like they're. They're just passing through, but they have enough of a connection that the that they have a old family estate that they're the they have family that is in that graveyard that guy dug up. They want to go and check it out. It's a uh, they have enough of a past with it. They've civilized out of this part of capital T Texas, uh, but they have enough of a background that uh, not only do they have an old house and family in the graveyard, but they're cons they're close enough to it that they'll go back and check and see what's going on, if it's okay, X, Y, Z. We can say that perhaps their family was faced with these economic situations and they civilized their way out of it, whereas these people are the ones who stayed in town. They went off to college, these are the townies, and the townies just got weirder and weirder and weirder. That's why they're basically like, they're fun, they're, they're like the kids, the girls in Halloween. They're fun-loving, they're fun, they're just kind of bopping along. We like them. They're, you know, they're kids. They're teens. They're having fun. And then they pick up the hitchhiker. And that's where they learn that they're no longer in Austin, let's say. <laughs> they're, now they're in the wilderness. And this is the set of rules that this set of people acts on. This is where we're in the open air Kim Henkel, Texas. <laughs> open air asylum. Yeah, it's like, and now you are the, in this open-air asylum, so of course you're amongst the inmates, and all you can do is escape. And what happens to Sally is she is dragged down to their level. The, the last image that we have of her is her doused in blood, screaming, laughing hysterically. She's been made crazy along with them. They've infected her with it. So... Yeah, anyway, I, I was gonna say that. I was gonna say that much later, but yes, go ahead, Rich. <laughs> I just want to. I just want to pull one thing that you said, Mike, back to the original question, which, which is like the the grave robbing, and I think that that would be my argument against like your perspective on it, John. Like just by a tweak, which is that they're not reliving their own past. These people are recreationists. These people are things that that take things and sort of like make a inadvertently make a mockery of them by trying to reconstruct uh, a couple of corpses to, uh, you know, to, to be acting something out. I think that they're reenacting what they understand the American family or the American dream to be more so than it being something that they ever had once and are like trying to like recapture again. Yeah. I, I can't argue too much with that, but I'm, I'm glad that you're bringing up the corpses again, because I want to maybe let's drill into it. It's not something I have totally figured out, but it is totally fucking fascinating. And let's see, like, let's kick it around a little bit because 
yeah, what do we make of this? The idea that these guys dig up the corpses and they make art out of them. And we can debate whether it's all Hitchhiker or Leatherface a little bit too. Putting that aside for now, the it's not the cook. We know that. What they do is build things, which are in some ways horribly beautiful. Like that fucking sofa is pretty fucking cool with all the bones and stuff in it. And that, that central art installation at the beginning with the, the, the two corpses together on this spire of, of graveyard architecture it's pretty yeah it's a it's a yes it's a great tableau and so there there's an artistic impulse here clearly and the only thing i can bring to it from what i said before would just be that they don't think of if you can saw through human bone like body parts while they're alive you're not gonna feel squeamish about using those materials for artistic purposes or for furniture because you've already crossed any kind of barrier that would keep you from from doing anything so to to you like it just becomes symbolic and 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 fun and functional and you just have no qualms about it that that's all i can add to it what else does can anyone else bring something to the table symbolic and fun and functional so like the leather face bone room is basically the ikea of southern architecture <laughs> that's the art room that's the art room rich <laughs> i was gonna say that clearly the sawyers are descendants of performance performance artists that were on their way from austin to san francisco it <laughs> didn't quite make it to spawn ranch yeah but um <laughs> but th- that's what leads me to the you know the concept of the open air asylum uh not only is it like kind of a through line with kim hankel's uh work and and worldview apparently because you'll look at it across these movies but also you know that uh, these characters were just sitting around the house. There, it's like you know what, it's a graveyard over there. Let's dig it up and do X, Y, Z with it. And you, know, no sane mind does that. You know, but and this is not like a first-time one-off kind of a thing. They obviously have this stuff all over the house. If they're used to killing animals and using their meat for food and their skin for X, Y, Z, then it's it's just one more step to go. Well, what if we did that with corpses? And you know, Rich, you're you're right. There's no smoking gun in terms of there being cannibals because you could very easily say that all the human remains that are around the house are uh, from the corpses that they've dug up. But yes, the only logical argument against that is they dig up the one graveyard and they do this stuff, and it causes a lot of news. But when the kids go to the house, there's already a bunch of stuff all over the place. So if digging up a graveyard causes news to happen, then and, and everything in the house is from graveyards, then news about dug up graveyards would have happened a long time ago. So uh, my only assumption is that these are from human beings that they've caught uh, probably at the gas station. By the way, uh, Mike, yeah. something that I noticed was the f- when we discussed it for the deep dive was that this is an escalation of their behavior. Because clearly, based on what we see, 
they've been subtly taking things from the graveyard for a long time. And on this occasion, they're like, you know what? We're going to leave something that y'all are going to talk about. So they made the decision. We're going to do something, this ornate installation. We want to go public now. We want people to know what we're up to. Yeah, I, I think a more contemporary screenplay would be uh, would want a key off of that. XYZ happened, so now they're going crazy. Uh, and in this movie, I love that we don't explain it. We don't need it. It's There's this crazy family around, and they've been doing crazy f- stuff for a while. And the crazy thing that they did lately was they dug up a graveyard and put up this tableau. And that's what leads our characters into their their scenario you know so but yeah it's like they've been around for a while and like rich pointed out it's uh they would be just fine if they just went up to the house looked around for a little bit and just got out of there you know but they had to get nosy one of my favorite scenes in this entire movie is when leatherface kills somebody and then he sits down and and he has like a moment he's shaking his hands are on his face you don't see that with any other slasher uh, you don't see Michael Myers doing that. He even uh, frightened uh, R-word galoot like uh, uh, Jason Voorhees in 2. He's not doing that shit. You know, the most he does is he gets a little, you know, oh, mom is talking to me. Like, that's the extent of his mentality, his pathology. These are actual characters. They're actual people. The fact that our slasher killer who wears human skin for a mask and kills people with a chainsaw has a dad who yells at him when he misbehaves. What are you doing? I mean, it's incredible. It's amazing to me. Um, yeah, he's a character anyways. with great vulnerability. Vic, you look yes. like you want to say something. I do. Uh, just to jump back a little bit to the escalation that, you know, that comes with them leaving this tableau in the graveyard, is that where the astrology comes in? Oh, is that where the the Mercury and retrograde or whatever? Yeah, sort of what sort of pushes their madness forward just a little bit. Do you, do you think that they actually follow it, or is it just the the universe just like ticks up their brain chemistry just a little bit more, and that's what what causes it? That because be, yeah, the latter the latter would be my interpretation that yeah the you know because they're not yeah I don't think they're reading their horoscope but. <laughs> there's such there's such attention paid to oh. the astrology stuff in the first act. I've heard Toby Hooper say that the purpose of all of that, and I was honestly hoping for something. I listened to a couple commentaries, one in like the early 90s and one like in the 2013 or 2014. And as a as a initial thought, it is kind of sad because by the time we get to the last commentary, a few nuts and bolts are getting a little loose on the on the on the caboose there of of, of Toby's mind. But he did say that uh, he just was going for this is a really bad day. That's that's what he was he was going for. Is that like every everything that could amplify the potential for badness was kind of in effect and and he, but he was you know consciously or unconsciously saying this was a bad time for the country and it's a bad time for these characters and that there's a literal representation of that in Saturn being in retrograde 
just as a very quick sidebar, I've told John a version of the story. A million years ago, when I was still working as a development executive, we had a guy named Mike McClary come in, and uh, he had a screenplay and was trying to get it made, and you know he asked us to help him out with that. So that was my job. I pulled him up on IMDb, and I swiftly realized that this guy had worked as a first AC on not only the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but also RoboCop. So he's run camera on 40% of my <laughs> five favorite movies of all time. I'm like, listen, Michael, uh, can I take you out to lunch? I just need to just tell me about your experiences with that. Can I, can you do that for me? Can I buy you lunch and just hear your experiences about you being working camera on the two of my favorite movies of all time? Yeah, absolutely. No problem at all. So we go out to the Grove. We're sitting there. I go, all right, listen, I, I have to ask you this. When she's walking up to the house, the camera that's tracking behind her, can I ask you, was that steady cam? Was it on a jib? What was the construction of that long flowing shot that follows her under the swing set, comes up, da, da, da. And he goes, um, I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> well, fortunately, I've listened to the commentary with Daniel Pearl, and he said they have a, uh, a track, dolly track, that uh, very low, he was basically on his back. And the other interesting oh, okay. thing about it was that the producers said, you're done with your shot list. You've got everything. Like, this wasn't coming from, I guess, like the financiers or something. I didn't know there were really producers on this. But it wasn't Hooper or Henkel or anybody. They're like, you need to move on. You need to get the go on down you know, to the next thing on the shot list. And there, he's like, yeah, but we came up with this shot, and it's going to be really cool. They ended up getting to do it, but it wasn't necessary at all. And they had to sneak it in. But obviously... Famous shots in the movie, yeah. 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 It's the shot that I, I... I wrote a paper about this in college, this movie. It's it's the shot that I think just... In a wonderfully shot film. Just a beautifully, artistically shot film. There's no wonder that Daniel Pearl has had a long, extremely successful career as a cinematographer. But I think that, that shot is the cherry on top of this movie. Uh, maybe a good time to grab another beer. Or whatnot. Yeah, grab a beer, finish up in the gym, get to work, or whatever the case may be. We'll be back with part two of this episode in a couple of weeks. Until then, adios. Adios.